Robert Wagner of The Little Wretches is here on The Antidote. Robert, it's great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. I'm excited. I'm nervous even. <laughs> is your life that limited that you're really getting excited by this? <laughs> well, I've devoted my whole life to this. So any chance I have to meet new people, introduce my work to new people, this has been in the back of my mind every moment of this day till now. Well, we're going to start off by getting the facts. So, Robert, you got to tell me, how long have you actually been a ratch? <laughs> oh, well, I, I sometimes lose the initial date. It was in the early 80s when I started putting this together. Uh, around 1979 or so, the punk rock scene in Pittsburgh had kind of come together. Now, that mostly revolved around colleges. I was part of that scene, and when that started to kind of peter out and and i it was like an apprenticeship i'm a good writer i know i have something to say but i have to find a way to frame what i do because it's not going to fit in anywhere uh you know every story needs a context every picture needs a frame so I, i started building the little wretches as you know a vehicle for my writing and you know thinking of how can i take these stories of mine and make them make sense to people who don't already know them so I think that, that maybe the first real performance for the band might have been 1984. Uh, I think our debut was at a theater company called the New Group Theater. So that was our debut, and I've been at it ever since. That is so cool. Well, you know, I went online and I did a hunt, and the earliest music I could find from the Little Wretches was from 1990, just another nail in my coffin. I mean, there there was this odd thing. Prior to then, you did vinyl or vinyl and cassettes. Mm-hmm. You know, I made cassettes. You know, I would dub them. I would go to the University of Pittsburgh library and dub 10 copies and go out that night and sell them for $5 a piece. And literally, <laughs> that's how I lived. If I don't sell two cassettes tonight, I'm not going to eat tomorrow. So I would work really hard, shamelessly, just kind of tell people who wants to buy a cassette. And then... uh what we were doing was pretty different than what other people were doing. And, you know, if I may say, I'm a good writer, and so much of the media, they're writers. So writers tend to recognize other writers. So we started to get a little bit of press coverage. We recorded a cassette, which a lot of people were excited about. And there was a record label that wanted to put out the album. And it never happened because, you know, in those days, our, our dream was to be signed by a major label. So we had a couple of seven-inch vinyl uh, releases and some cassette releases. And then there was that weird time where you had to make a decision because, you know, we're an indie band. We're, we're sinking our own money or the money that we make from gigs into the work. So are we going to make a vinyl album or are we going to make a CD? You know, in 1990, CDs were still pretty new. Mm-hmm. Tony Norman of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. I took the CD down to him. He had to go to the library to listen to it because he didn't even have a CD player. <laughs> so that's that's the earliest like CD, like digital track of us. Something else about that album is that it isn't the same style as what you're doing now. I mean, with songs like Bag of Rocks, this was really straight up rock and roll. Well, yeah, here's how that, that kind of took shape. I had the early version of the band you know, me as the lead singer, songwriter, definitely doing kind of a, a folk rock. 
somebody said that we were like a cross between John Lennon and Neil Young. And uh, but I felt like something was missing. And what was missing, I thought, was like harmony, vocals and, and more melodic stuff. You know, I have a pretty limited voice. So we were doing a recording session that, that created an album called uh, Why Were There Poets Silent? And a guy who grew up near me and went to the same high school as me, Dave Losey, just happened to be in town. And he came to the recording session and he just sat in on grand piano. You know, things just clicked. And he said, nothing's really happening for me down in Atlanta. Uh, why don't I join the Wretches? You know, our plan was to, to be on the road. Ellen Hildebrand, who, who played rhythm, guitar, and bass, she, Dave, and I, you know, we really had something magical. In fact, Ellen, when she auditioned for the band, I don't even think she knew how to tune her guitar. Mm -hmm. But she came to her audition, and as we were talking, I found out she had gone to college on a basketball scholarship. It's like, okay, so she knows how to compete. She knows what it means to be part of a team, and she has the nerve to come to an audition barely able to play her instrument <laughs> so we had this super hot band and then there was like a mutiny they sat me and dave down at, at the kitchen table and said if you're serious about this band you're gonna dump that chick she's an embarrassment and we just laughed at them it was like she has more soul than you guys have combined you guys are out forget about it get your stuff get out of the rehearsal space Within months, we'd recorded uh, just another nail in my coffin. You know, the dream of being signed. You know, I'd had record company presidents say to me, do you want to be a rock star? But every time a big opportunity presented itself, there would be some kind of personal tragedy would befall somebody in the family. Here we'd worked, you know, five, six years to put ourselves in the position of breaking through and being big time. And it just wasn't to be. So I surround myself with the best people I can find at any time. The person who brings wretchedness to the project, somebody with soul, somebody with some fight in them, somebody who knows what it means to have been outcast, downtrodden, and kicked aside, and keeps coming back to the door for more. Before we get into the new album, I want to bring in something the Little Wretches did a couple of years ago, Undesirables and Anarchists. No, I I do actually know a few people that can fit that label. Would you ever apply that to your band? Because, I mean, you aren't ordinary or run-of-the-mill. Oh, if you only knew. <laughs> the, the people around us, like our inner circle, some really amazing characters, many, many of whom, there's a high mortality rate around the little wretches. And not necessarily through irresponsible behavior. I think some of these guys, they just kind of knew that they weren't going to be around long. For whatever reason, they invested their talent and their time in my project. They backed me instead of doing their own thing. Ed Heidel, John Creighton, my brother Chucky. My brother was a great poet, a great singer. He could have had his own band. He backed me. You know, when I see him in heaven, I now know how, how much I owe him. So we've had some crazy people around us. Now, the actual title to the album, I'm told it took me about five minutes to be politicized when I went to college. Because, you know, I was a very angry kid. I was against everybody and everything. You know, and Marxism has the magic formula for changing everything. So I think, you know, somebody snapped their fingers and I became a Marxist. And uh, while I was in college, 
what in fact one of the motivating forces for me starting the little wretches is i had a rare form of cancer and i had a marxist professor my hospital room was on his way home from his office to to where he lived he would stop off and visit me in the hospital every day mm-hmm. and at one point he used the freedom of information act to send away for his fbi file and the fbi file was largely redacted but it included dinner conversations that he'd had at restaurants which made him wonder if his table was bugged or if some of the friends he was having dinner with were informants for the fbi and and it's funny looking back on it you know that whole marxist thing because you know I, i was raised roman catholic so you know i've always been around the faith that you know that whole marxism thing it operates on we're trying to seek a utopia Whereas, you know, believers kind of know the utopia is in the afterlife. You're never going to have it here on this fallen world. But for the Marxists, they think they're going to make it happen here on this fallen world. One of the Supreme Court candidates once said, if you weren't a socialist before the age of 30, you have no heart. If you're still a socialist after the age of 30, you have no brain. Now, that's a cliche (laughs) now, but it's kind of true. Something interesting about the album, about undesirables and anarchists, is that you even brought in a bit of a punk flavor on the song Give the Knife a Twist. Now, the song mentions how people can be broken dreamers. So what about you personally, Robert? Have you had dreams that have ended up being broken? Well, not me, because I'm a diehard. You know, I I mean, I'm still at it. Many of the people in the arts... I mean, I don't want to bring classism into it, but say if if you want to be in a band, guitars are expensive, amplifiers are expensive, computers are expensive. You know, the children of wealthy people really have a huge advantage. The, The kid is interested in baseball. His dad hires him a private baseball coach, buys them skis, buys them golf clubs, buys them tennis rackets, and invests in their talents just knowing that even if you don't end up becoming a professional tennis player, having played tennis will make you a more well-rounded individual. But if, if you're a working-class kid with, with limited resources, you don't get that kind of encouragement. What you get is, well, that's all well and good, but you need to make money, so don't kid yourself with that guitar. Don't kid yourself with that writing. Get a job that pays and do what you love on the side. That's all you can hope for. Mm -hmm. You know, you just have to fight through so much. You know, like, I'm crazy, because, you know, I I believe that I have a calling for this. Having been raised in the faith, this idea that if you do what God wants, you will be blessed. People have given me cars. People have given me food. People have given me places to live. Every time that I had nothing, I got what I needed. Not everybody's cut out for it. I just... I'm blessed that I was. You know, nothing's going to make me quit. Well, you've already mentioned tonight a couple of times about faith. That's really a key ingredient to the band's new album, Red Beats and Horseradish. Why emphasize it? Well, when I first started, the frequent response from people was always, oh, your songs are so negative, your songs are so negative, your songs are so angry. And that always puzzled me because I just assumed everybody thought the way I thought. And, you know, for me, I'm coming from the point of view of faith. I wouldn't draw your attention to a problem if I didn't think the problem could be solved. 
if I was hopeless, I wouldn't even bother talking about it. Uh, in this case, though, these songs, the way they came together, literally, I like eating red beets and horseradish. It, w- it was something that we used to always have in, in my You're family. A sick man. Why would you eat that? <laughs> uh, no, it, you know, it's an ethnic dish. We would always have it around Easter. And one year I got the hankering for it and I couldn't quite get the balance right. So I looked it up on the Internet and discovered that uh, there's symbolism to the ingredients. And, and it varies from ethnicity to ethnicity. But like Serbs back in the Middle Ages fought, you know, a bloody war, then were persecuted. And so for the Serbs, the red of the beets is symbolic of the blood of their people. And the horseradish is symbolic of the bitterness of their suffering. I see. Like the Slovaks, who are largely Eastern Orthodox, the red of the beets is symbolic of the blood of their Savior and the horseradish, the bitterness of his suffering. And so I have a lot of songs about sick people, crazy people, old people, people who are alone. The song Loving Kindness, Rosa, who's you know one of the singers, uh, sings lead on, on Winter's Grace, you know, most of her singing has been in the church. And she asked me to write her a praise and worship song. And I was like, I can't really write a praise and worship song because I don't work inside the church. I'm behind enemy lines. I'm I'm working in the world. I'm trying to go up against the world and, you know, at least beat them to a stalemate and try to keep afloat. So the faith element has always been there. On this album, it's just a little bit more explicit because the you know the theme of the album calls for it you know i've always been wrestling with god and there's always been uh, a lot of people of faith have been part of our core audience but you know we've never had any backing within the christian community because you know for evangelicals you're not supposed to wrestle with god you're supposed to praise him like no nah, I heard Bishop Robert Barron talking about wrestling with God. I think some guy named Jacob wrestled with God. Uh, I think there's a lot of wrestling with God in the Psalms. So that's what I do. You know, I'm not uh, fake praise. Well, you know, even with that faith aspect to the album, you included something that really took me by surprise because you recorded a radically different version of the hymn, Old Hundredth. Oh, I love it, too. Now that I've heard the finished version, there's a couple of things I would change about it. When The Little Wretches first started, uh, um, among the things in our repertoire, we used to do a song called Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child, Rock Island Line, Jesus Died to Save Our Sins, Glory to God, I'm going to See Him Again. All that old folk music has a real strong gospel presence to it, and that was always part of our, our show. The way The Old Hundredth came together is I I was at a bookstore in Charlottesville and I found an old hymnal and I bought it for like 50 cents. And as I was flipping through and catching all these really good couplets or these good one-liners, I was just writing them down on the side. And uh, I saw, you know, the hymn, you know, hymn number 100. And I figured, oh, you know, I've heard this played in churches and I think it's a theme song for some like Christian talk shows and so on. But uh, so I, I just took all those little lyrical phrases that i'd pulled out of the hymnal put them in a in a rhyme structure and uh kind of loosely set them to the melody of old hundredth but if you don't know the old hymn you're not going to recognize it as a hymn i think it rocks i I love it 
you know, like I was mentioning how like working class people are always kind of beat down and they're afraid of their own shadows. They're the least likely to take a risk. They're the least likely to try something new. And I think the last line of, of, of our version of Old Hundredth is, you know, the freer step, the fuller breath, the joy of life that fears no death. I mean, at least that's something to aspire to. You know, while we're here, we got a job to do. You mentioned just now about the beaten down working class. That's an ongoing theme of the album. Yeah, yeah, but I hope it's not too negative. I mean, one of the things that I try to point out to people is these folks hold on. In some way, there's some like self-effacing humor in there. We're supposed to climb and improve ourselves. I want to bring in the song that has really struck me the most from Red Beats and Horseradish, Tiger Pajamas. The final verse says, Oh God, why did you do that to my brother? His enemies are my enemies. So how am I supposed to avenge what you did to my brother? And I guess the question is, should we be free to question God? Well, I've had a few Christian friends have told me, oh, you, you know, you have to say afterwards. Like, no, I don't have to say anything afterwards. It's a character who's angry with God. I mean, that, that's what you have a character in a situation telling a story. Now, of course, the character is me. I can step back and adopt a different perspective based on my, my theology. But the question of suffering is still something that believers, and especially non-believers, people who reject the faith, often reject it over the question of suffering. Mm-hmm. And, and in this case, if you knew the details of my brother's story, you know, it it would be like a Dickens novel. Uh, but, you know, I mentioned that I had cancer when mm-hmm. I was younger. Well, my little brother went to a high school near where I was in the hospital. And since I, when I was on chemo, I couldn't eat. He would come up and eat my lunches, you know, for free. <laughs> He'd come up, visit me on his lunch break, eat my lunch, and, and then go back to school. So years later, he had a toothache, and he went to the dentist. And the dentist said, well, it's not your tooth. Uh, you got a lump in there. Uh, we're going to have to schedule an appointment with the surgeon. You're going to have to have a biopsy done. Mm-hmm. And my little brother just intuitively knew that it was cancer. He knew having seen what I, I'd gone through, and he didn't want to go through that. Uh, he also, my brother, had a little bit of a drinking and a drug problem. And, and my brother may have been abused when he was younger, uh, he stayed with a friend of my mother's for a vacation for a couple of weeks. And my sister speculates that he may have been uh, abused during that stay. Either way, my brother may have been gay. He had more girlfriends than I had, but he, he definitely was involved in gay relationships. So he, instead of going to get his biopsy, he stole money off my father, ran off to Atlantic City, went on a binge, And by the time he was diagnosed as having cancer, it was too late to do anything about it. And uh, like I mentioned, my my brother was was so talented. You know, I I, I say sometimes that, you know, the the devil must have hated me since before I was born. For some reason, I'm still here. You know, from the original version of The Little Wretches, my brother's gone, John Creighton's gone, Ed Heidel's gone, John Paul Leone's gone. God must have me here for a reason. I must not have finished what what he wanted me to accomplish. Okay, Christian fans out there, I hope you will take this in the spirit of love, not in the spirit of criticism. 
But look, the Christian music industry is that it's an industry. It's it's creating a product for an audience. It's, it's a niche, fat free, sugar free, alcohol free, caffeine free. You're parroting Bible verses, but you're not really doing the job of an artist. If for, for me, you, you may have seen this somewhere in, in the Little Wretches propaganda. My mission statement is from a song by Lou Reed. I'll be your mirror, reflect what you are in case you don't know. Man is God's greatest creation. We are God's imagers on this earth. So if I write about people and their lives with authenticity elegance and precision that i will be honoring god when you look in the mirror of my songs and you see yourself you have a choice to make are you going to try to improve yourself or are you just going to smile at your own beauty that's up to you if we are writing honestly about the world and if we are writing honestly about life and we're acknowledging how fallen we are you know, there's going to be some stuff in there that's, that's going to be kind of gritty and it's going to be upsetting. And it's not the type of thing that you're going to sing about in church on Sunday morning. But you'll see it in the Psalms. You'll see it in Scripture. And that's not necessarily what the Christian music industry is all about. Especially if you've been through any kind of trauma, the things that have made you who you are, it's not even polite to talk about. You have to go through your life in disguise. You can't be who you are because you're ashamed of who you are. If I can't speak honestly about that stuff, who will? Now, and I know that's going to cut off a big part of the audience. It's not going to get me on a lot of pop radio stations. But, you know, there will be, be people out there that will be moved and touched by it. I'll be able to get by and somebody might be profoundly changed, maybe even have their life saved through it. Just as a quick thing here, we've been talking about red beets and horseradish, and I just realized that you would have recorded this in the middle of the pandemic. Did that cause problems for you? Yeah, way more than I anticipated. The last album that we recorded was Undesirables and Anarchists, and we were very well rehearsed. All the songs and arrangements were road tested. And the engineer that we worked with, he, he kind of got what we were doing. And he said, if you can basically set up and do a live show, don't record the vocals. We'll overdub the vocals, but re record the basic instrumental tracks without a headphone mix. Just go and set up. It's like a live show. By the time you're done setting up, I'll be ready to cut. And we were completely well rehearsed not overly rehearsed so we still had to focus we still had to put the energy into it mm -hmm. but it was all basically recorded live in the studio i thought that's what we would do with this version but you know and i now live 300 miles away from pittsburgh and you know so my my collaborators i i drive 300 miles we have a rehearsal today we'll have a rehearsal again on sunday then i'm driving back to philly so among the things that we encountered uh, were People having to be care providers because somebody in the family had COVID or they couldn't come to the rehearsal because of COVID. So I'm doing rehearsals. I'm doing the rehearsal with a bass player via Zoom. I'm doing the rehearsal with a drummer. So it was all one-on-one -on -one rehearsals. So we didn't really hear ourselves play together as a unit until we were together in the studio. You know, we had like two full band rehearsals and then Rosa, she didn't attend any of them. And I thought she was going to be all over this with her singing and her percussion playing. But she just was unavailable. So it was very hard. You know, studio time is expensive. I had some sessions where basically I sat there and, and overdubbed 
extra guitar parts, hoping that the other members of the band would show up, and uh, they didn't. You know, it was true. It was a trying experience. But the results made it worth it. Well, this is from prayer. I mean, I felt like I I could have used other musicians, but I felt in debt to the the, the people. They they gave of themselves on the last album. You know, they'll they'll never be paid what they're worth. So I, I felt you know a debt of gratitude. You've been a part of my creative life. You know, I want you to be on my team. And if it takes us two years to do this album, it takes us two years. You're gonna sing, and if it, you know, if you're not ready to sing now, when you're ready to sing, you're gonna sing. I felt just very important that the people who were on it had to be on it, and there was gonna be no second guessing, no substituting, no plan B. We're gonna stick with the course with these guys who I love, and they made it happen. I'm gonna pull in another song from the release. You brought in this great line on the song "Palms and Crosses." And it says, all I can say is tomorrow will decide what yesterday means. And I know you're right about that. I guess really what I'm asking here is going to be out of context with the song. But I suppose it's nice to think that we'll look to the past and say we did the right thing. But it also could have been a poor decision. So how do we handle the disappointment of knowing that we were wrong? Well, uh, through the grace of God, we'll live to have learned our lesson and make something good come out of it. I mean, look, look the, the cliche that, that believers always fall back on, all things work together for good. You know, in addition to music, I do a lot of work with at-risk teens. And one of the reasons why I can naturally bond with, with kids who've gone through trauma and lost their families and, and gone through horrible indignities of Hey, you don't have to explain to me why you're mad. You know, like, what am I mad? Look at the way I'm living. And if you don't know why I'm mad, that's why I'm mad. You know, so, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, in, in, the, in this trauma sensitive world, the thing that still resonates with me is whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. You know, I was raised, you know, from the time I was a kid, you know, the devil's going to try to trick you and you're going to try to get you to abandon your faith. And you need to look at every obstacle as a lesson. Every time you fall, what can you learn from it to make you a better person and a stronger person? And, you know, that particular song, you know, these lines come to you, you know, where they must come to you from the spirit. But, you know, I was thinking uh, the day after the crucifixion, you know, the majority of the disciples probably went into hiding. They're probably questioning everything that they'd seen and heard in the past three years. Oh, we, we didn't know this was going to happen. Oh, no, what do we do? And then the next morning when they go to the tomb and the stone's been rolled away and there's an angel waiting to say, it's like, oh, so there was a reason for all of that. Each verse of that song gets more and more mundane down into the realities of life. A woman might be planning to get married and then her groom ditches her a week before the wedding. I mentioned a single mom with three small kids. Now, why is a woman with three kids a single mom? She either lost her husband or he bailed on her. But we're still here. We don't know why that tragedy happened. We don't know why that, that suffering occurred. But something further down the road will have made it purposeful. And I can just say from my own life, I've gone through things that didn't make any sense 
And now I've had experiences where, where I'm with a kid where I think, oh my, that thing that happened to me when I was younger, that prepared me right now at this moment. Nobody in the world can handle this situation better than me. I understand exactly what needs to be said, exactly what needs to be done. And the kid knows that I'm there with him, you know. So, yeah, tomorrow we'll decide what yesterday means. I, at one point, I, I had the, the title of the song was Holy Saturday, but uh, I thought that was too Christian. I, I think it's poetically true for everybody. Well, I got to say, Robert, I really appreciate you coming for this talk with The Antidote. Well, I enjoyed our conversation, and I'm glad we had a chance to talk. I hope to see you down the road sometime.